As we have seen in the past couple of Mishnayis, Mijabonon, all lands outside of Eretz Yisrael are considered Tomei. As well as that, Mijabonon, one does have to separate Chala even from outside of Eretz Yisrael. And in fact, as we learned, he'll have to separate two portions of Chala, one which would go to the fire and be burnt, and the other which would go to a Kohen. Now, since all dough outside of Eretz Yisrael is considered Tomei, if somebody were to bring Chala from outside of Eretz Yisrael into Eretz Yisrael, so although outside of Eretz Yisrael perhaps a comb will be able to eat it, because we don't consider it real Chala, since there's no source in the Torah for Chala outside of Eretz Yisrael, however, if you bring that into Eretz Yisrael, so there real Chala applies. So although the Chala which is brought from outside of Eretz Yisrael is not real Chala, Nevertheless, we must treat it as if it was real Chala, and since we consider it Tomei, it cannot be eaten by a Kohen. However, at the same time, it can't be burnt by the Kohen either, because people don't realize that the Chala is Tomei. It never came into contact with anything Tomei, it just came from outside of Eretz Yisrael. People don't necessarily realize that that makes it Tomei. So if people see somebody burning that Chala, even though it didn't come into contact with anything Tomei, they'll think that regular Chala can also be burnt. So it can't be eaten by a Kohen, and it can't be burnt by a Kohen either. So another option could be that they should bring it back to the place where they got it from outside of Eretz Yisrael. Because outside of Eretz Yisrael, the Chala can be burnt or eaten. However, that's also forbidden because once it's been brought into Eretz Yisrael, as we said before, people don't necessarily realize that it's Tomei. So if you then take it from Eretz Yisrael out of Eretz Yisrael, people will think that you're allowed to take any regular Chala from Eretz Yisrael out of Eretz Yisrael. Which of course is forbidden because then it would become Tomei. So you can't give it to a coin and you can't give it back to where you got it from. And indeed the Mishnah records two stories where Nittai is Tekoya. Nittai, the man and the leader from Tekoya, which is a city in Eretz Yisrael. So he lived in Eretz Yisrael, however he went outside of Eretz Yisrael on a visit to a place called Beitar, and this Beitar was outside of Eretz Yisrael, not to be confused with the more famous Beitar, which was in Eretz Yisrael. But be it as it may, he went outside of Eretz Yisrael, and the people of Beitar gave him chalas, which they'd separated, and they'd accumulated quite a few chalas, and they gave it to him to bring back to Eretz Yisrael, to give to Kranim in Eretz Yisrael. So Hevi chalas from Beitar, he brought the chalas from Beitar, but the Chachomim in Eretz Yisrael did not accept them from him meaning they didn't allow him to give it to the Koyanim, as we explained, and in fact, they didn't even allow him to give it to the Koyanim to burn, or to take it back to Beitar. So what exactly should be done with this Chalos? The Yerushalmi explains that it was left until Erev Pesach, when all the Chomets has to be burnt, and then it was burnt together with the Chomets. Because burning it then won't make people think, oh, you can burn any Chala, because it's clear that the only reason why you're burning it there is because it's Chomets. And in that scenario, you are allowed to burn Chala. Alright, another mission brings a very similar story, Anch Alexandria, the people of Alexandria from Egypt, Heviu Chalisemi Alexandria. They brought their chalice which they had separated in Alexandria, and again the Chachom did not accept it for them, and they instructed them to leave the chala over until Erev Pesach and then burn it together with the rest of the Chomets. The mission now brings a similar story, but this is re- with regards to Bikurim. Bikurim are the first fruit that ripen on one's tree, and it's a mitzvah to bring those up to the Beis Hamikdash and give them to Koyanim. Now the halacha is that korbonus and various gifts which are brought to the Beit HaMikdosh, which come from grain and produce, such as Bikurim and such as various flower offerings, they cannot be brought from that year's produce which grew that year until after Shavuos. And the reason for this, as the Mishnah will describe in a moment, is because an offering of two loaves of bread called the Shtea Lechem was brought on Shavuos, and the Torah implies that that needs to be the first offering which is brought from that year's produce. And therefore you can only bring Bikurim after that. However, Anshad Savoyim, the people of Hyde Savoyim, which is a mountain area 
In Eretz Yisrael, he viewed Bikurim Kedunat Seres, they brought their Bikurim to the base Hamikdosh before Shavuos. Rulay Kibbun Mehem, but the Chachonim did not allow the Kohenim to accept them. Because of the Posuk in the Torah, which says, with regards to the Shteyalechem, this offering which is brought on Shavuos, the Chag HaKotzer, the festival of the harvesting, that's a name for Shavuos, Bikurim Asecha, Asher Tizra Basadeh. The first of your works, of your produce, which you planted in the field, so that implies that this, the Shteyalechem, has to be the first offering from the New Year's produce, and therefore Bikurim and the other flower offerings can only be brought after Shavuos. Mishnud Aleph. The Mishnah continues to list various things which were brought to the Beis Hamikdash but were not accepted. Benantinos Helo Bechurus me Bovel. Benantinos, who was an important figure, brought up firstborn animals from Bovel. The halacha is that one's firstborn animal needs to be brought to the Beis Hamikdash and offered up as a korban, as long as it doesn't have a wound. However, this only applies to firstborn animals from Eretz Yisrael itself, but not from outside of Eretz Yisrael. This is learnt from the Torah, which puts the command of Maisasheni of bringing Maisasheni to the Beis Hamikdash, it puts that command next to the command to bring Bechirais, to bring firstborn animals to the Beis Hamikdash. Now, just like Maisasheni only comes from Eretz Yisrael produce, it's a tenth of one's produce which he needs to bring up to Yerushalayim and eat over there, so to the obligation to bring up firstborn animals only applies to those which are born in Eretz Yisrael. And therefore, they did not accept the firstborn animals from Benantinois for the reason that we explained. Yosef HaKoyen, Hevi Bikure Yain Voshemen. Yosef, who was a Kohen, brought his Bikurim in the form of wine and oil. Now, in general, Bikurim are brought as the fruit themselves. Not processed, but the fruit themselves which become ripe. However, the halacha is that one is allowed to bring wine and oil, since wine and oil are actually considered more important and significant than the olives or grapes from which they come. So these two liquids can be brought in the form of liquid, unlike other fruit juices. So in general, one can bring the cream of wine and oil. However, he can only do that if originally, when he picked the fruit off the tree, he had the intention that he's going to process it into oil or wine and bring up that as the bikurim. But if he originally picked it off the fruit, picked it off the tree, intending to bring out the fruit itself, so then even when it comes to grapes and olives, they can't be processed into wine and oil, because he decided and set the fact that he is going to bring the cream of the fruit themselves, because that was his intention when picking the fruit off the tree. And since that's what Yosef HaKoyin did with the they didn't accept these Bikurim from him. Now the truth is, Yosef HaKoyin was a Kohen himself. So anyway, he would have kept the Bikurim himself. The point is, they didn't allow him to go through the whole process in the Beis Hamikdash, which one usually goes through when bringing Bikurim, because they held that you're not allowed to bring this type of Bikurim if that was not your intention. Continues the Mishnah with another thing which Yosef HaKoyin did, and the Kohenim did not allow it. And this is regarding Pesach Sheini. The halacha is that if somebody does not manage to bring a Korban Pesach on the original, the first Pesach, on the 14th of Nisan, for example, if he was Tomei, he wasn't allowed to bring the Korban then, the halacha is that he is obligated to bring a Korban Pesach one month later, on the 14th of Iyar, and that is known as Pesach Sheini, or in our Mishnah it's known as Pesach Cotton, a mini Pesach as it were. Now, although when it comes to the first Pesach, real Pesach, there's a mitzvah for somebody to appear at the Beis HaMikdash together with his entire family, his wife and his children, even his young children. However, when it comes to Pesach Sheni, the only mitzvah which applies there is to bring the Korban Pesach, and one is not obligated to bring his little children with. Now, it once occurred that Yosef HaKoyen and his entire family didn't manage to bring the Korban Pesach on Pesach, they were all Tomei, and so when it came to a month later, he brought up his young children and all the members of his household, to perform the Pesach cotton and to bring the Korban Pesach in Yerushalayim. However, the Hechziruhu, 
the Kayanim or the Chachamim sent him back. And the reason why they sent him back is because he brought all of his children with. And Yosef HaKohen was a very important individual. And if people saw that Yosef HaKohen was bringing his entire family with, they would come to the conclusion that it's an obligation, just like on the first Pesach, so to on the second Pesach it's an obligation to bring up one's entire family, even his young children. However, that is not the case, and the Chachom didn't want to trouble people to bring out their entire family for the second Pesach, and therefore they sent Yosef HaKohen back, so that the matter of bringing one's little children would not be fixed as an obligation. Because it wasn't an obligation. Alright, and finally the Mesechta ends off with one last story, Aristoin Hei Bikurov Me Apamya. Aristoin brought his Bikurim from Apamya, which is a place in Surya. Surya borders Eretz Israel, and as we described a few Mishnahs ago, it refers to the lands which David HaMelech conquered before conquering the entire Eretz Israel itself. And Medjabonon, Surya has many of the laws of Eretz Israel, and Medjabonon it's considered like Eretz Israel. And therefore, just like it's obligated in the various tithes, it's also obligated in Bikurim. So when Aristotle brought his Bikurim from Surya, the Kiblum Menu, they did accept his Bikurim. Bipnesha Omru because the Chachom said, Hakina Basurya, one who buys a field in Surya, Kakina Bafarvar Shabirushalayim. It's like buying a field on the open area, just outside of Yerushalayim, meaning that a field in Surya Midrabonon has the same status as a field in Eretz Yisrael itself. And that is why they accepted the Bikurim from Surya, since it was obligated Midrabonon in Bikurim. Solik Maseches Chala Mazeltov. Masech's Ola discusses the laws of a tree during its first three years. The halach is that during the first three years of a tree being planted, all the fruit which grow from that tree are forbidden not only to be eaten, but even to be benefited from. And therefore any fruit which grows on a tree during that tree's first three years of being planted need to be destroyed. And the truth is when we say three years, that's not exactly accurate. Because it is not three exact years. Rather, on the first of Tishri, Rosh Hashanah, that begins a new year which means that the first year could be much less than a year. The first year has to be at least 44 days. The reason being that it takes two weeks for a tree to take root in the ground properly, so it's only considered really planted after two weeks. And then if it's left there for 30 days, 30 days is considered a significant amount of time, and that can count as a year, and then Rosh Hashanah begins the second year already. So the first Ola year is usually less than an actual year. The second year is a full year. And the third year is actually longer than a full year, because the third year is only considered to have ended, in terms of Oralah, when it reaches Tubishvat. So the third year is from the second Rosh Hashanah of that tree's life, past the third Rosh Hashanah of its life, all the way until Tubishvat. So that's another four and a half months after Rosh Hashanah. So the first year is less than a year, it's any time between 44 days and a year. The second year is exactly a year. And the third year is a year plus four and a half months. So it would actually end up being around three exact years, because the first year is shorter and the last year is longer than an actual year. Be it as it may, that is for the first three years of a fruit tree. Now all the fruit which grow in the fourth year, so that would be after Tubishvat, that is known as Netaravoi, fourth year plants, fourth year produce, and there is an obligation to bring up all of the fruit which grow in the fourth year to Yerushalayim and eat it in Yerushalayim. Now the laws of Netaravoi are mainly discussed in Masechus Maisesheni, in the first half of the last parak over there, and the focus of this Masechta is mainly to do with just Orla, although we will go quite sidetracked in the second parak. Now unlike most of the laws which apply to land and produce, Orla applies even outside of Eretz Israel. 
And this is Midoraisa. There is a halacha Mishma Sinai, there's a tradition which we have going back to Moshe Rabbeinu from our Sinai, that it's forbidden to eat the fruit of a tree outside of Eretz Yisrael during its three years. And there's an argument as to whether one is allowed to benefit from Orla of Chutz Oretz. However, certainly the prohibition to eat Orla of Chutz Oretz is forbidden Midoraisa. Mishnah Aleph, the focus of the first Mishnah is when somebody plants a tree, but not for the sake of the fruit. Does Ola still apply to the fruit of that tree? Or do we say that since that's not the primary function of this particular tree, it is exempt from Ola? Says the Mishnah, When he plants a tree to use it as a fence, just like bushes often surround a garden and function as a fence, he wants to use the trees for that purpose. Or if he plants the tree for the sake of their wood and the beams. So again, he's not planting it for the sake of the fruit, but rather to get wood from the trunk. Says the Mishnah, Potamina Arla, the fruit of that tree is exempt from Arla. And this is learned from the Posik, which says, When you plant a fruit tree, a food tree, then Arla will apply to it, which implies that only if the main function of the tree is for the sake of the fruit. But if it's not, then Arla will not apply. Now Rabbi Yossi takes this a step further, and Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Yossi says, Even if he said the inner part of the tree I'm intending to use for its fruit, for food, but the outer part of the tree I'm intending to only use as a fence. Says Rabbi Yossi in that case, the fruit which grow on the inside of the tree, the side facing his field, or facing his garden, those fruit will be obligated in Potter. whereas the fruit which grow on the other side will be exempt. You can split the tree in half according to Rabbi Yossi, and those fruit which are functioning for the fruit, the part of the tree which he planted for the sake of the fruit, that will be obligated. But the other half of the tree, since he didn't plant that for the tree, for the fruit, the fruit will be exempt from Arla. Mishnah Beis, there are many different cases in this Mishnah of how and why and who plants the tree and whether it will be obligated in Orla or not. And we begin with a historical point of view. When the Jewish people first entered the land of Eretz Yisrael in the times of Yeshua, is Shabbat Avsenu Loretz, at the time that our fathers entered Eretz Yisrael, if they found trees which were already planted before they entered, Potter, the fruit of that tree would be exempt, even if it was still within the three years. Since the Torah says, When you come to the land and Tatem and you will plant the trees, then it will be obligated in Orla, which implies that Orla only began once they entered the land of Eretz Yisrael. However, not all. Any trees which they planted, or even which the non-Jewish nations in Eretz Yisrael planted, but they did it after the Jewish people entered the land, says the Mishnah, even before the Jews had conquered the entire land, those trees would be obligated in Orla, because the Torah says, as soon as you come into the land, then Orla applies. It's not dependent on you conquering the land. Now the fact that even if a non-Jew planted the tree, it would be obligated, is learned from the Pasuk, which says, Every tree is obligated in Arla. So the fact that it were added the word every tree comes to include even a tree which was planted by a non-Jew. Next case, Hanutayla Rabbim, one who plants a tree for the sake of public use, but he plants it in his own property. So he allows all the public people to eat from the fruit, he plants it for their sake, however he plants it in his own property, says the Mishnah Chayev, that tree is obligated in Arla, and this is learned from the Posuk which says Yielochem, it will be for you, the laws of Ola will apply to you, and the word Lochem is written in the plural, for you in the plural. So that teaches that even if it was planted for the sake of the public, for many people, it is still obligated in Arla. However, Behuda Peter, Behuda exempts this tree from Arla, and this is because of a very important rule with regards to interpreting Pesukim. And that rule is, in Ribri Acharibri Elolemait. If the Mishnah has a word which includes something extra, 
and then it has another word which includes something extra. So those two combine to teach that you don't say the extra thing. What does that mean? So in our case, the Torah uses the word lochem for you in the plural, but it also uses the word untatem and you in the plural will plant. So the Torah used two words in the plural. So although had it said only one, it would have taught us that even if the tree is planted for many people, it's obligated. The fact that it said it twice, so it's got two of these including words, that teaches that actually you don't include that case. It actually comes to exclude the case where it is planted for many people. And therefore Rabbi Huda says that a tree which was planted for many people, even if it was planted in your own property, is exempt from Arla. says the Mishnah. One who plants a tree in a public domain, but this time it's the opposite of the previous case, because here he's planting it in the public, but for his own sake, for his own needs. So let's say he might bend the branches over into his own field, and the Mishnah is going to tell us that you would be obligated in this case. And this is learned from the fact that the Torah says that whenever you plant, it says you'll plant a tree and it will be obligated in Arla. It doesn't specify if you plant a tree in your own field, so even if it's somewhere else, it's still obligated in Arla. The Hanochri Shanota and a non-Jew who plants a tree, as we explained before, the Torah says Kol eats every tree, which comes to include even a non-Jew who plants a tree. There's a discussion whether the non-Jew has to plant it specifically for a Jew, or perhaps he planted it for himself, maybe he sold it to the Jew later on. But the point is, even though he planted it, it is still obligated in Arla. Shanata, a thief who steals a field and then plants a tree into that field. So if the original owner gives up hope of getting back that field, the halacha is that the thief actually becomes the halachic owner of that field. Now even though it's forbidden for him to use that field, nevertheless the fact that the Torah says that every tree is obligated in Arla, Kol eights, that implies that even if it was a forbidden planting, it would still be obligated in Arla. Basfina, one who plants a tree on a boat, and this is either talking about a wooden boat, which has holes in the bottom, so the roots will eventually go through the holes of the ship, and will end up getting nourishment from the ground of the sea, the seabed, or if the bottom of the ship is made out of pottery or earthenware, then even if it doesn't have holes in the bottom, it's still possible for the roots of the tree to travel down through the pottery and through the earthenware and underneath the ship and still gain nourishment from the seabed. So if it's either of those two cases, it will be obligated in Arla because it is gaining nourishment from the ground. Okay, and final case for Ha'ilamit Eilov, and a tree which grows by itself, but in somebody's field. Says the Mishnah again, Chayv Ba'ala, it is obligated in Arla. The Torah does not exclude such a case. In fact, it says, Kol eats every tree. And so this too is obligated in Arla.